This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Lena Shields, the Chief Media Officer for Lilly USA, So today on the show, we're going to talk quite a bit about her career path, um, some of the mentors and uh, mentoring that she's doing today and the advice that she got to improve your career and advocate for yourself, frankly, if you enjoy and take away some of the keen insights from Lena today. After all, I highly enjoyed the conversation and Ad Age has named her one of their women to watch in 2019. Lena, welcome to the show. Hi, Alan. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, I thought we could start with a personal story. And uh, I'd love to hear about where you grew up in Italy and made you decide to come to the U.S. Uh, sure. I So I'm born and raised in Italy. Um, I'm from the southern part of Italy, from Calabria, for the majority of my family. But my father was in the Italian army, so we moved every couple of years. So the majority of my time um, has been spent in Rome. And uh, so I consider myself from Rome, but culturally from the south of Italy. And I moved to the U.S. the first time in 2003 and then pursued my MBA in the U.S. I moved to from Rome to Los Angeles in California, got my MBA. I got here on a student visa. So I was able to actually get that fairly quickly because all I could do was study. So I got my MBA in a year and then started working in sales for Lilly shortly thereafter in, in L.A. And um, then moved to Indianapolis for other marketing opportunity, then back to Europe for marketing leadership roles. And then this is my second time in the U.S. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I mean, Italy is one of my favorite places to go. It's I think I may have mentioned this before when we were talking, but the, it, it's where I got I engaged to my wife. Um, yeah. Posed in Florence. So Florence has a special place in my heart. But but Rome is nice, too. Yeah. Well, Florence is where our affiliate is based, too. So my second time in Europe with Lily, I was based in Florence. Yeah. Yeah. You really can't go wrong, really, any parts of Italy, I think. But I'm no. Honest. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, well, let's talk about your background. And it looks like if I look at your LinkedIn profile, most of your career has been with Lily, 15 mm-hmm. years since your MBA, like you said. Were there, I guess, where did you, is that where you started? And, and were there any pivotal twists along the way? 
Yeah, so in the U.S., once I moved to the U.S., the majority of my career has been in Lilly. I didn't plan to be a Lilly once I got out of my, or didn't plan to be in pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical industry. When I was going to school and university, actually what I wanted to do was uh, work in global policy and really, truly, I just wanted to change the world. So my, I'm a political science major and my dream was to work at the United Nations and work on global policies that actually made impact in how less fortunate people live their lives. So I think I'm still living some of that dream, but I'm doing that on the commercial side. And I am, you know, my job is really to give information that bring people medicines that they, that can help them live healthier and longer lives. So I started in Italy, graduated from university in Italy, moved to the U.S., Los Angeles, like I was mentioning, got my MBA. And then after that, what I wanted to do was, uh, at that point, I knew I wanted to be in marketing. And so what I wanted to do was to work for a Fortune 500 company and in a marketing role. And I wanted to have a company to work for that had a big impact again on people. So I wanted to work in big advertising, but I quickly found out as I have moved to the U.S. on my own, I didn't really have any network. I didn't have any resume, any connection, you know, now looking back and, you know, as we hire MBA grads, I'm just amazed at my lack of knowledge of the process and how we actually could have leveraged, I could have leveraged some of those processes. But I, so I could call a lot of my way in, uh, including my internship actually. And then by the time it was time for me to find a job and want to have this job in marketing, I realized very quickly that without any network, I couldn't really land the marketing job that I wanted. And a lot of the companies I wanted to work for were on the East Coast at the time. And so it became clear that sales for me was going to be a way for me to build my way into marketing. And so I didn't want to sell printers or sell things that were actual sales. And so I realized that pharmaceutical marketing was more of a consultative type of sale where you were working with doctors to help them figure out, you know, what would be the best candidate for a product that that particular company had. And so I basically, you know, at the time, it was now 15 years ago, the internet existed, but there wasn't a whole lot of user-generated content online. And so I found this book that was called How to Land a Pharmaceutical Sales Job in Three Days. And I bought the book (laughs) (laughs) and I did everything that the book said to do everything down to like my attire, everything. And it le- it took me more than three days. It took me five months, but within five months, I had two offers on the tables from two major pharmaceutical companies. And one of them was from Lilly and I chose Lilly. And then from there, I stayed three years in sales every year, reminding people that what I wanted to do was marketing. And I think, you know, you asked about pivotal twists and mentors within my career. I think the two pivotal twist that I can kind of identify was definitely when I was able to get out of marketing, sorry, from sales to getting into marketing. So I moved to Indianapolis to, you know, as kind of a theme, the first half of my career, I always took the job no one wanted. And so I took the job in marketing that no one wanted at the time, which was what they used to call e-marketing, not even digital marketing at the time. (laughs) And then I think later on in my career, as I established myself in marketing, I had, you know, some successes under my belt. I think The other big pivotal point for me was when I got a a regional leadership role for Cialis in Europe. So I was deployed to Europe on assignment and I was the regional brand leader for Cialis for Australia, Canada and Europe. And I was responsible for uh, the commercialization of Cialis as well as preparing all those affiliates for the launch of the BPH indication for benign prosthetic hyperplasia in all of those countries. And that has really propelled me more into, once I was established as a marketer, really fast forward my management career. So I think those will be the, the big two changes and twists in my career. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Um, and we're going to talk more about that you know, sale, moving from sales to marketing, but I don't want to leave off this story that you told me when we first <laughs> talked about, about getting your internship, because I love this story. So do you mind telling the story for listeners? Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I sometimes forget. <laughs> I think it says a lot about your hustle. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so when I first moved to the U.S., again, I knew nothing. It was basically my first time in the U.S. and I went straight from, you know, university um, to my MBA school. And, you know, there was a lot of cultural adjustment, obviously, that needed to happen. I spoke English, but, you know, differently than how I speak it today. And um, I learned the majority of my English through music. So that was another adjustment. But I would say 
halfway through the year on the MBA, again, I was only doing that because I wasn't a, on a student visa. And halfway through the year, everybody disappeared from campus. And I didn't know where everybody was. I didn't know where all my schoolmates were. And I asked around and they were like, oh, they're they're doing the internships. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> I didn't know we're supposed to do internships. And they said, well, you're supposed to go get yourself an internship and get your experience. So explain to me what an internship was, because you have to remember in Italy, you know, even just the academic system is very different. It's, it's truly academic and it's based on study. So we don't have, unfortunately, a lot of hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. So explain to me what an internship was. And, and this, you know, you, you kind of, you're supposed to get yourself an internship halfway through. So then you have a way to, you know, have experience when you finish your MBA. So for me, with that signal, I took that pretty literally the way I was speaking English back then. So when they say get yourself an internship, I thought I was supposed to go out and get myself an internship. (laughs) So what I wanted to do at the time, I really, really, I knew I wanted to work in marketing. But at the time, you know, I just moved to Los Angeles and me being such a huge fan of music and entertainment and, you know, that being the way that I have learned the American culture and just English itself, I was just so fascinated in LA by everything that was Hollywood related. And it was just like living in a, in a reality show for me. It was amazing. And so what I wanted to do was marketing of entertainment. So I wanted to market movies and music at the time. I thought that was going to be a good way for me to do it. So I just thought, you know, okay, so I'm going to go get myself an internship at the Motion Picture Association of America, because why not? So I literally drove my little Nissan Altima at the time to the Motion Picture Association. I parked and I went up and said, you know, that I was their intern and that I was there for the internship. <laughs> and they were like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, the, the long story short, somehow I did get in front. I mean, I guess I suppose once they saw me at the door, they were like, OK, you just run with the story. And it wasn't me being bold. It was me truly being clueless. I didn't know that that's not how you get internships. So I kept saying I was there to get the internship and to, you know, talk to somebody about getting an internship there and that I was their intern. And so eventually I sat down with this hiring director who was the director for worldwide market research and went through what I was expecting to be an interview because I I knew I had to kind of compete for that. And she kept saying, you know, we usually get interns from Pepperdine. This is so weird. I haven't even heard of this (laughs) before. And I was like, well, that's, that's what you're getting today. And so I finished my interview. They had me interviewing with a bunch of other people. And eventually they offered me the internship. And I went through the whole process of the internship, did my project, which ironically, based on the job that I do today, ironically, my project was to figure out if there was a business case to one day stream movies on the internet, which I think is fascinating, you know, what I do today, which I said, yes, there was a business case in Japan and the US, according to my opinion at the time. <laughs> and um, I did the whole entire internship. And it wasn't until later on that I actually figured out that that's not how other people had gotten an internship. <laughs> that was a process. And so it was a great experience because I don't think I would have ever gotten into the Motion Picture Association of America with the through, you know, with through the regular process, but it also, I guess it, it, it was unintentionally courageous, but um, it was a great experience. No. Yeah. I mean, it's funny and comical, but at the same time, <laughs> like I just, I, I'm like, I'm going to go get me a job. Like I'm going to go, I'm going to go sit in the chair, literally. Right. I'm gonna like it. I'm going to go fetch yeah, it basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I love it. I love the story because I mean, how many, you, you set yourself apart you may not even, you didn't know it, right? But you yeah, set yourself yeah. apart by just going and getting it, right? And that's such a great story. It's such a great story. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, let's talk about this transition we were talking about. I mean, so so you go get yourself an internship, and then and ultimately you land in sales <laughs> at Lilly. And you can understand, like, showing up is a big part of the sales role, right? And mm-hmm. detailing uh, doctors that you're assigned to. But tell me about what that early sales experience was like for you and you know what did, what did it mean for you? Yeah, you know, it was, um, again, that was technically my first paid job in the U.S. too. So I think for me, it meant probably more than, than other people in the job. At the time, it's interesting because I was right at the cusp when uh, pharmaceutical companies were changing their models for who the profile of people they were looking for, for pharmaceutical sales jobs. So when I was interviewing, I was still competing with 50-year-old pharmacists that had years and years of experience in pharmacy and like very deep product knowledge and scientific expertise. And it was just at the time when actually Pfizer 
had as kind of the pioneer that I consider them to be, they had realized that, you know, scientific knowledge is very important, but uh, at the same time, access and time with doctors was becoming a hot commodity. And so it was equally as important to have people in the job that were able to establish personal relationship and establish trust very quickly with physicians. And, And so to be able to get access and time with them. And so I came right at the cusp where, you know, the scientific knowledge was still a must. And at the same time, they were looking for people that would know how to sell, basically, and, and which I didn't. So let's be clear about that. Right. And so I, again, I studied everything that book says. So, you know, I um, pretty much could anticipate what they were looking like, uh, what they were looking for in the interviews. And the interviews were very structured. So I studied that book. I did everything that book did and I got the job. And once I started the job, it was a little bit different than your typical pharma jobs because I started as an account sales rep for Kaiser Permanente. So my only client was Kaiser Permanente in Southern California in the Inland Empire, which again, started this trail of jobs that nobody wanted because you know the job was great. The Kaiser Permanente job was amazing as a sales rep the Inland Empire, not so much. So I had everything from, you know, Temecula all the way to the high desert. So I was selling in, you know, in a suit in 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And that was my job every single day in the desert where nobody wanted to go at the time. But I think for me, what that did is it actually explained unintentionally something very important then for my marketing career later on. What it did is, first of all, having an account job since in, instead of having you know, two or three specific products like most pharmaceutical reps. It taught me to have breadth of portfolio, making connections uh, where obviously allowed, but also understanding the totality of the job that an internist would do or the, a psychiatrist would do and understanding what their problems were. So the thing that it, the sales experience really gave me that I think I perhaps experienced a little bit differently than other people. You know, most people get into a sales job and they really want to have that for the rest of their life and they become great people at selling I didn't have that aspiration for me in my life. And so what I quickly gravitated forwards with, towards was really understanding what was the doctor's problem. I looked at the doctor as you would a consumer. I looked at the doctor as somebody that I was trying to help fix problems for and quickly realized that both him and I had, or her and I, had something in common, which was we both were motivated by the best interest of the patient and helping people get better. And so if you understand that, I think it gave me kind of a leg up in really transforming the way the sales call would go from a five minute, you know, hey, doctor, would you sign here for samples to really become almost a trusted advisor because it really became the same foundation that I have today in marketing, which is what's the insight, meaning what is the tension that in marketing, I would say a consumer has, but in that case, a doctor has, you know, what is the problem they have when the patient sits in the chair? And what is the benefit that my product can offer? So it almost became a pseudo marketing job that I wasn't aware of until I fully transitioned into marketing. So for me, it was greatly formative. I think it also gave me a lot of credibility within the industry because at the time when I transitioned in, you had to have carried the bag to be in marketing. And so Mm -hmm. that kind of checked the box big time, even though I didn't have that as an aspiration. I just wanted to, I wanted to get into marketing. (laughs) Right, right. No, that makes sense. And I know you've had a successful, you, after that transition, you have a successful number of appointments from in the marketing organization. Mm-hmm. And I think your latest move was from the brand or consumer marketing side to this chief media officer mm-hmm. position. And so I, I'd love to hear how you talk about this new, you know, this new chief media officer position that you're holding now and how it's defined and, and what you're focused on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, you know, I transitioned to this role towards the end of last year, being of this year. And um, before that, I was the um, senior director of consumer marketing for all of the diabetes portfolio. So in that role, that was more of a traditional brand marketing role across all of the brands that we have in the diabetes business unit, which is our biggest business unit at Lilly. So while that was a great role, uh, at the same time, the CMO, global CMO that we had at the time, yeah, I was working closely with him and he had this tendency to just put stuff under me when he didn't know where to put them. And so uh, very quickly, once I took that role, he gave me um, also the charge to run the media piece at the beginning, which was, you know, it was kind of small at the beginning because it was fragmented across all brands. And then to run our digital transformation, as well as I started, uh, restarted and um, basically 
resuscitated this uh, charter for multicultural marketing that we had at the time with the executive committee. So the job had become really, really big. And when he retired, I was given the chance to choose a, in their mind, it was kind of like, which, which way do you want to go? What I did instead was pretty much recraft the role that I really wanted to do and where I saw the majority of growth, both for myself, but also for the company. I crafted this role so that I could really try to propel Lily as a outright advertiser in the advertising space, as well as, you know, I want them and I want the company to obviously have a competitive advantage in this area um, in the pharmaceutical industry as well. So while I had the chance to stay in brand marketing, I had done that at every level in my career. I, as much as I love it, you know, I'd done it regionally, I'd done it globally, I'd done it in the US. And so I think this side of the house attracted me much more. And also I, I identified this as modern day marketing and where I feel like at Lily, we're still a little bit in, in the 90s sometimes. So I saw a huge opportunity to really propel the company and propel my growth as well. And so the way this role is structured right now, the chief media officer role, actually, as a, you know, coincidentally, at the same time, the ANA have published a white paper around the role of a chief media officer and why most brands that have a substantial investment in media should have a chief media officer. So why, when I took a look at that white paper and I took a look at the role that I had, it was pretty much a carbon copy. And so it was very easy you know, to make the case that the company needed a chief media officer. And um, that's how we created the role. While we did that, I then built it around three main areas that I oversee, I oversee today. And those areas are definitely the media investment, by which we went from a basically having 22 different scope of works for 22 different brands that has some sort of advertising to all the way full DTC mix, to now have an integrated portfolio look where we show up as a close to a billion dollar advertiser in the industry. Mm. And we have a portfolio strategy to maximize revenue and using media as a way to drive revenue and intensify our ability to bring relevant information to patients in a timely manner. So I really moved it from um, just basically scope of work to an actual portfolio investment that is now managed at the CEO level. And so that's a big part of the, obviously the chief media officer job is it's around media, but I also kept multicultural marketing, which is, I think, very important for us a little to develop centrally before we embed it into the system. And we have built multicultural marketing from, again, a revenue generating perspective. So when I reinstated that charter with the executive committee, Purposely, I didn't add a business case to it because I think the business case should be the population that we serve mm. and the multicultural nature of that population. And so we have had some great results this year that really point to the fact that this is a, a an additional, also an additional growth factor for us. And then the third bucket is uh, the digital transformation, what we call NGC, Next Generation Customer Engagement, specifically in my world for consumers. And that's really what I jokingly and lovingly say is bringing Lily to the 21st century. So um, it's really changing how our brands show up and making sure that we employ a digital first approach. So under that bucket, we have I run a start startup model for a brand specifically where we are prototyping our new go-to-market model from a marketing perspective, everything from our MarTech and data structure to then be sure that we can create structures that are repeatable across brands and we can maximize the way we reach consumers across the journey before, during, and after prescription. So those are really the three big buckets that are today under the chief media officer role at Lilly USA. I love it. So tell me a little bit more. I know you just talked about or just highlighted digital transformation, but maybe give us a little bit more in terms of, I know it's a changing of, of media types, but also, how else, what else is under that next generation consumer landscape? Yeah, I think, you know, one way to summarize it is it's actually a huge passion point for me. Um, because one way to summarize it is if you look at pharmaceutical advertising across the years, you know, let's say the next, the last decade, mm -hmm. and I will just speak for Lily, but in general, our advertising has been very acquisition focused and has been very teleassertive. So we will identify brands that we need to increase demand of and increase awareness of. Usually it's huge launches of medications that we think have a great revenue potential and a great uh, patient need as well. So that we can, you know, obviously we start always from the patient need first. But our advertising model has always been, I think, very teleassertive in the fact that we have a heavy TV mix. We go on television and we tell people, go to your doctor, go to your doctor, go to your doctor. And then we kind of follow them through conversion or prescription and really don't didn't have a holistic view of what the experience is for patients. So if you take it back to 10, 15 years ago, 
when at Lilly we started launching Cialis. Cialis was really the first medication where, that we had where we needed to have a consumer-centric approach, but also really needed to root ourselves into inside-based marketing. It wasn't just about the product feature, but it was about what was missing from people's life and from men that were suffering from erectile dysfunction. We had a formidable competitor at the time, and they had done a great work creating the market basket and the, the market itself for erectile dysfunction. I think internally what we had to develop was really the capability that laid the foundation for insight-based marketing and the basics of advertising, which has been fantastic, has led us to great success in market for more than just Cialis and the other consumer products. Once I came back from Europe and I took a job in, as the consumer director for psoriasis first and then moved on to diabetes, I think I was just surprised to find that our medicines, we had brought so many great medicines to life and through the pipeline, but our ways of marketing and our consumer marketing, although still very solid and, and rooted in insight, I was very surprised that we hadn't really evolved with with the way the media mix had, had evolved and just people's media consumption habits had evolved. And so we still had, just to give you a sense, when I took the team over, we still had a 70 to 80% television mix mm. with a lot of print still and just very little digital. And digital was really just banners. That's all we were doing. So fast forward two years and a lot of this through this next generation customer engagement model, but really also through this um, digital transformation approach that we have. We now have obviously a much more balanced mix that is getting closer to be 50-50 between traditional media, linear and digital assets. But we also have, sorry, digital media, but we also have an underpinning of a data strategy that enables better targeting and that's geared to revenue creation. So it's not just placing digital and making sure that we can catch digital, that we have the data infrastructure to do that, but it's also making sure that everything we do is measurable and is ultimately we are able to conduce it back to did it work? Did it bring patients to the doctor? Were we able to give information to patients that fostered action where appropriate? And so I think the big change is going from from a marketing perspective, this kind of TV heavy, very traditional media mix and tell a certain mode, go to your doctor, then realize the prescription and be done to now understanding what's the experience across the journey. We're very good at depicting and we have been very good at depicting the emotional journey of mm -hmm. patients that go through any particular diagnosis and living with a disease. The aspiration of what we're trying to do on the startup model is being able to be just as good and just as precise in understanding that experience online and that, that experience through media so that we can understand what are the key moments. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the journey before people get to prescription, during that prescription moment and afterwards, so we don't abandon the patient afterwards, but we're able to support the experience. And ultimately, we believe that will create better experience for patients and a value creation for Lily as well. I love it. I love it. And I want to talk a little bit more as well about multicultural efforts that you mentioned before. And it's one of the things that, mm -hmm. you know, as an outsider, it's always hard to understand what's going on inside a company as someone that doesn't work there every day. But yeah. you, you can yeah. always see the ads, right? Or the communications that they put out in the marketplace. And it's one of the things that I, I kind of applaud, Lily, and all your various you know, brands, the drug brands that you have, the communications are usually fairly diverse in the people they're represented in mm -hmm. those, the backgrounds that they come from. And so I would love to get the backstory, if you will, the, yeah. you know, the around multicultural initiatives at Lilly and, and you know how you're driving them as well. Yeah, you know, you asked what are some of the big changes I'm driving as the chief media officer. And, you know, it's it's interesting that I would want a multicultural to stay with me. But I think one of the biggest things I have done and that I'm proud of having done, or in general, I think it's a theme throughout my career, it's always 
challenging the status quo. And I think part of my job, especially in this role, is always to keep asking, well, why not? Why can't we do this? And mm-hmm. this, I think, has been an example of that. I think on, on paper, you know, when you talk about multicultural marketing, no one will argue that the population in the U.S. has changed and it's a need. But I think a lot of what you find in different companies, not just Lilly, is that, well, general media reaches our multicultural consumer as well. And, you know, as long to your point as you have diverse representation in your TV advertising and your advertising in general, your cover for multicultural marketing. And I I think I, I challenge that. And uh, part of the discussion was, you know, of course, it's great to have great representation. I think we were always very careful with talent selection to make sure that it was representative of our target patient. And of course, that, you know, required diversity and we were um, careful of that. But to me, multicultural marketing goes a little bit deeper than just representation. So mm-hmm. if you think about in a in simple way, what's marketing and what's great marketing. Marketing is, you know, highlighting product feature, putting the product in the right place, giving it the right price, make sure it sells in a way, in a nutshell. But great marketing is where you understand the core tension of your target audience. You understand your target better than your competitors, the emotional value that they put on those tensions and what are the motivators to, that ultimately would drive them to action. And then you deploy and, and use that understanding so that you can associate to your product feature and higher order emotional benefit. So if that's how we do marketing, and that's, I think, was exemplified for us by Cialis and Cymbalta and how we approach those those molecules. And, you know, it wasn't just about the product feature. It was about the emotional benefit that was heightened for the consumer because we understood what they were missing. So if that's how we approach marketing, then why wouldn't we look at the same way when we look at multicultural marketing and at a different consumer. And so the thought behind multicultural marketing was, you know, there were a lot of, you know, the backstory was there were a lot of start and stops. So, you know, what I noticed, it was also because we always associated a business plan of some sort of a short-term nature. So if you give me X million dollars to start this, I will bring X million back in two years and because Mm -hmm. this segment will create growth. And I decided to approach it a little bit different. I decided to approach it as, you know, we don't have a choice, but not to understand this consumer because this consumer will become our totality of our audience very quickly. And, you know, I'm very passionate also about the understanding that the brand has to have about culture in general. So this was really the first step to get to a broader cultural communication and, and understanding. And so if that was the foundation from which my conversation started, then the next piece, and I continue to say this every day when we talk about multicultural marketing here within these four walls at Lilly, which is, this is not a a test and learn. This is not a test to see if multicultural marketing works. This is not a test and learn to see if our campaign works. This is our commitment to figure out how to do it right. And part of that will be that we'll fail. Part of that will be that we'll find pockets and areas where we don't get the same return as others. That's fine because we're not asking ourselves, should we do in multicultural marketing? We're saying we're committed to serve the multicultural patient in the same way, if not more than the way we serve the general market patient. And so what I did over the past year or so is, first of all, as you and I were chatting before, my team is by design 95 to 98% external hire. So I think a lot of the job of my team is to lead the rest of the organization in this type of capability. So for multicultural marketing, I hired a multicultural marketing director that had a lot of experience in CPG because to me that is very insight-driven, but also very grounded in PNL and driving results. And so we started to build the capability. We were in market and on television within four months from hiring her, which in pharmaceutical years is like two seconds because right. <laughs> I always say pharmaceutical years are like dog years. They take forever. Yeah. So we're in television on four months and we started from the low-hanging fruit. So we took extra footage and we start that we have from the previous shoot for Trulicity and we started there. But what we did was the same foundational work that we have done for other brands. And so we treated this as any other consumer. And what we found very quickly was that once we did a foundational market research for for example, the diabetes journey of of an African-American patient versus an Hispanic patient versus a Caucasian patient, just very simply key insights of the fact that the same ecosystem of the healthcare system behaves quite differently among the three segments. And then What's driving a Hispanic patient is very different than what's driving an American, African-American patient or a Caucasian patient when it relates to taking action for the diabetes. So from there, once you have the foundation, we t- teamed up with uh, what we think is one of the best multicultural agencies in in the market today. And, you know, from there, we were able to parallel path with creative with our 
main uh, spot first, and now we are all the way down to separate shoots that are done just for multicultural. So I think the best testament has been how embraced it has been in the in in the long run within the company. You know, I think the the end of the back end story is that it's always a great spot to be when now my biggest preoccupation is telling people, hey, this is the multicultural marketing team's job. This is not the brand team's job because it means everybody's bought in. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we saw a 44% lift in new business prescription in the Hispanic segment specifically that are directly correlated with the Hispanic campaign that we ran in language. So it was great for people, it's great for an unmet patient need, and it's also driving business results. Wow, that's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I applaud your efforts because it, it's it's not easy to one make the case that like you made, and two to make sure it replicates and and ultimately drives mm-hmm. business at the end of the day. So, good job. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> I want to circle back on something because we talked about this before, and it's not necessarily core to your day job potentially, but you talked uh, when we last spoke about mentoring uh, young and early professional folks and. Um, mm-hmm. I know you obviously hustled your way <laughs> to get <laughs> to get those internships to land that sales job by by preparing yourself, making yourself you know ready and prepared to take on those jobs. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what advice do you give those early career professionals that you're mentoring? Yeah, I have um, a lot of passion for early career professionals. I um, they give me a lot of energy. You know, I learn a lot from them, but. I do spend a lot of time with them in, in trying to be the biggest advocate that I can in career management conversations here internally with management. I'm passionate about not only them, but also I'm passionate about creating the next generation of marketers and making mm-hmm. sure that the next generation looks a lot different than this generation and a lot more diverse than this generation. So I have passion about infusing diversity of thought and diversity of backgrounds into uh, marketing today. So as all of us, we are very pressed for time. So I always try to make sure that when I do give mentoring time, it gives to it, it goes to people that perhaps you know have less exposure. Or, you know, one thing I always say is, as you look at the first part of my career, I was always the less obvious choice. So a lot of times I've gotten the job that then propelled me or I got in the job that was the opportunity for me to show what I was worth because somebody else believed in me or because somebody else put their name behind me when I really wasn't the obvious choice. And I was looking a lot different than the obvious choice and speaking a lot different than the obvious choice. And I definitely had a whole lot more energy than the obvious choice. (laughs) And uh, somebody put their names behind me and said, no, let's give her the shot and let's give her the job. And so for me, I feel a huge responsibility and passion about making sure that I hold that door open for the next generation, but also that I speak up when there are career opportunities and I put those people in those opportunities as as many times as I can. And so advice I usually tend to give them, you know, on the flip side, you know, there's a lot of ambition and sometimes... I talk to a lot of people that are just saying, you know, how do I get to CEO tomorrow or something along those lines. And so I think there's typically three big buckets of advice that I tend to give. And uh, one is, especially early career professional, you have to invest the time in learning a skill set. And the skill set cannot always be general management from day one. To some degree, you have to have some technical skill set, but you also have to be able to negotiate for yourself. And, And that looks different in the early parts of your career versus later on. Later on, negotiation may mean, you know, on salary and conditions of your work. Early on, I think sometimes you have to negotiate for yourself to get the right amount of responsibilities or get the extra project or being able to be exposed more. So helping them understand, you know, where the negotiation comes in. I was not good at negotiating for myself. I, to some degree, I still lack in that area. And so I try to, with hindsight 2020, at least at that early parts of the career development, I try to give that advice. The other advice I give is it's always about growth and career for me. So it's not just, you know, what's the next step, but I always want to make sure that as we are thinking about next step for them, they they look also where they can learn. And just to not assume that the next career progression step also means additional growth, that it's up to you that um, to make sure that you have opportunities to stretch yourself, but also that that growth is seen. So it's a good mixture between the career, the job, but also the exposure and who will speak on your behalf. And that's important. So said differently, I try to make them see kind of the behind the scene on how to navigate the culture. And it's kind of big culture that we have a little in terms of corporate rules and unwritten rules that are in succession management to the best of my ability. And I try to give them the transparency that I perhaps didn't get at that stage. And the last piece, which I always try to make sure that it doesn't get lost, is that 
it's always hard and science together. So they need to develop a technical skill set. They need to perfect their craft and their science, but they can't forget the heart. And I think I think sometimes I see that in, in females mentees that I have, or or even more diverse mentees in terms of you know wanting to be perfect at every single part of their job and assuming that if they are, they're going to progress. And part of that is, you know, it's not always about just what you do, but it's also how you do. But I really, really try to make sure that I can be a sounding board for them and a almost like a springboard to ensure that they don't lose the passion because that's like the most beautiful thing to see when you talk to them is just how much passion they have for themselves and for marketing and for the business. And, and I just want to make sure that they don't try to emulate whoever they look at at the top, but they try to keep their true self and, and understand that that's an asset. And what they need to do is try to find people that value that so that they don't lose their heart and their passion. Mm, that's great advice. Great advice. Well, one of the things I love to do with folks that come on the show is to get to know them as people. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I love asking this question, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Oh, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's, sure. I mean, it would be weird if I said no, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I just came. You passed the first test. Right, right. (laughs) No, I just was born like this. No. So, you know, I think obviously, I think it's a conglomerate of a lot of experience. And obviously my family has a big part of that. So I think very high level, I'm a daughter of a commander and that comes with a lot. (laughs) My father, like I was mentioning before, was in the army and the Italian army was a commander in the army. He also was kind of, you know, he is still alive. He's a commander. He also says, you know, once a commander, always a commander. It's like (laughs) you can never retire. So he's retired, but not in his mind. So he's always like, do priests retire? They don't. So, <laughs> he's, always a priest. so he's always a commander. Uh, but, you know, he was he is a commander, a man from the very deep south of Italy, which culturally is, I mean, the, the most deep rooted Italian and Mediterranean culture. And he's an engineer. So it's very rigorous. So I mean, those three things made for a, and, and, you know, somebody as rebellious as I am that made for a very interesting stretch <laughs> of teenager years in our house. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, being the daughter of a commander, I think that came with just a sense of discipline and duty. And also we moved every two years while I was little. And so that gave me a different perspective on change. I enjoy change. It excites me. And so I think I see it a lot in my job today. You know, I'm in the middle of transformation and, you know, I always have to often have to give the speeches around where we're headed and why change is good. But I do notice a difference that since when I was little, you know, I was changing schools and classmates every two years. And and while I think looking back and now that I'm a mother myself, I think that would petrify a lot of kids. I it just, I still get excited. Like, I mean, you tell me I have to move to a new city and it's exciting to me. And so change is good, but change excites me. I see that as, as opportunity. And also, you know, obviously who I am today is still so deeply rooted in, in the Italian culture. I am Italian. I'm still an Italian person that moved to the U.S. And so, you know, it's, it, that's very hard to summarize. But I would say, you know, the pillars of poetry and philosophy and big ideas and and be in touch of seeking the essence of things at every time. I think that that has played out both personally and professionally once I moved to, to the States and constantly looking to feel or understand what the essence of things are, whether it's on the business side, I deal with obviously huge budgets and huge amounts of change and just investment. But I always try to seek for, you know, at the end of the day, what we do is if you have a a medicine that's able to add eight months of life or more months of life to somebody has a terminal illness, that's more time with their family once they know they're, you know, they don't have much more than that. I mean, that's the essence of what I do. It's not about how much media budget I'm investing. It's about connecting meaningful information to people that may change their lives or save their lives in the end. So I think those are kind of big things. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter how technical I am. I still am a woman of Italian poetry and art and and that, that stays with me too. That's awesome. Well, you've already given advice to younger professionals because I asked you for that, but I'm curious if you were starting all over again, is there Mm. any advice that you'd give yourself? Yes. I was smacking myself upside the head many times. I think if (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know, we talked about the internship and the Motion Picture Association. And, you know, a lot of people like look back, like even here, Lily, because they know me for so long. They're like, oh, I remember when you did this, this, and you stood up and you said this, and they were so furious. I was like, no, I was clueless. I had no idea what this meant and who was in the audience. I was clueless. So I think, I mean, hindsight 2020, I think looking back, I would say, I, I would never do that again. I mean, some of the things I've said early in my career in, I guess people saw them as courageous, but like now I, w- I wouldn't necessarily advise myself to do that. <laughs> but I think if I had to give myself professionally advice on my younger self, I would say the first piece of advice I would tell myself is that you belong here like anybody else. And I think for the longest, I would probably up until this role of the one prior for the longest time, you know, I called it kind of the immigrant syndrome, you know, where I would swipe my badge in the morning. I just could not believe it worked every day. I was like, yes, again, like they're letting me work here. And while that's great on one hand, again, now that I I have a, a bigger remit and I manage people's careers, I would really tell myself, you know, you belong here like anybody else. You know, you don't have to prove more than other people and you don't have to be intimidated by other people at the table, even if they want you to feel intimidated. And I think, and this is actually advice I give also early career professionals, you know, yeah. half of the time people that sit around the table actually don't know anything they're doing. So just if you're prepared. Don't feel like you don't belong. I think that I would take care of myself a little bit more in that sense. That would be the first one. The second one will probably be negotiate for yourself because I found out later, if you don't ask, you don't really, you have no chance to get it. And I think it goes hand in hand with the feeling of feeling like you belong at, at the company or a decision-making table and that you have something to bring. I, I think it's still an area I'm working on, but if I... If I now that I again manage people, if I look at the gap between women and minorities and how that mm-hmm. impacts compensation, I think had I been more vocal or even had I understood a little bit more early on, I think even my current situation would be different. And I certainly want to make sure it is different for people that come after me. So I would say negotiate more. And then the third piece is stay grounded in the things that matter. And, and this is more personal because. You know, the U.S. is an amazing country. It's it's truly the land of opportunity. You truly can be anything you want in the U.S. If you're willing to put in the work, I truly believe that. And But at the same time, for me, I can't ignore the fact that I come from a different culture. And so one advice that I would have for myself is that make sure that in the whirlwind that and this beautiful land of opportunity can offer you and you can grab everything you want. Make sure that you always check in with yourself to stay grounded to what's important in, in your life personally. And, you know, tactical advice I would give myself is, which I try to follow still, is never go more than one year without returning to Italy because that's really Italy. It's where my roots still are and what grounds me. So I love the fact that I I can be in this wonderful country and I can grow so much here in a way that I couldn't have done, frankly, in my country. But I would advise myself to make sure that I, I never go one year without going back, which I still try to do. Mm, that's great advice. Well, two last questions for you. We'll start mm-hmm. with the first one. Are there any brands, companies, or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of? You know, if you had asked me this question, you know, maybe a year ago, I would have, I always would have answered probably with iconic brands, like probably something out of PNG, mm-hmm. just big brands that have done, like, I would have answered this question with like very rigorous marketing that yielded great campaigns and great creative and uh, probably something out of PNG and L'Oreal. But I think today the marketing ecosystem is changing. It's fascinating to watch. It's something I love watching. And so I think to answer today, what brands should be we watching? Those are the brands that are able to tap into culture. I really do think that's the next frontier for marketing is, you know, data was something we had to conquer for sure. But the brands that will continue to show up and win in the marketplace to me and the competitive advantage will be to the brands that are able not only to tap into culture, but almost predict cultural cultural currents, as well as understanding what's the right place for a brand to show up within that cultural discourse, which is very, very tricky and is much more harder to figuring out, you know, what's the right copy test score for your for your TV ad. So, you know, one example would be, I think, Nike. You see Nike kind of play across the Mm -hmm. spectrum and ultimately with the Copernic campaign, definitely figuring out the right place for that brand, but also being able to take in the backlash that was anticipated for for some of that audience. And so brands that understand where to stand for for a cultural cause and when to not do that. And then all the way down to, for example, a couple of other examples with the IKEA 
with the recycling initiative or mm-hmm. the furniture that helps people with disabilities. So just understanding how do you place yourself at the core of a, a matter that is important to your audience, but do that in a way that doesn't sell. That in selling and you know the success of the brand will come from the ability to place themselves into a discourse of very meaningful conversation without a hard sell. I think it's an art. And I think it's one that we haven't mastered yet as, as marketers. And for me, it's fascinating to watch because I predict as pharmaceutical companies will be the last ones to follow. <laughs> I am looking at my colleagues in other verticals. I, I think it's a fascinating frontier, one that speaks to my heart. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I've been noodling this, this concept and folks that listen to the show have heard me say this a couple of times. Um, I'm still kind of, kind of trying to dig deeper, that, but this notion of how do we connect culture and commerce through creativity. Mm. Um, yeah, that's like a great way to put it. Yeah, it's, and I think, you're, I think you're right. I think there is a new wave of sorts coming and it's driven by a lot of things. You, you mentioned them. I mean, some of it's just the cultural currents and the, and the shifting mindsets of people around the world. But other things I think, I mean, that are going to you know, influence it as well is just where people consume content, what's available to us as marketers to influence them. I think we're going to have to get more embedded in culture to find those opportunities and and creativity's got to be at the core of it cuz they don't exist right now <laughs> in many cases. <laughs> so, but anyway, the last question for you is uh what do you feel the future of marketing holds? Huh. The future of marketing, I think you know, I touched a little bit upon the um the culture piece. I think the the future of marketing actually to me always roots back to if we move away from understanding the deep core of human insights, then we're probably not going to have a huge amount. We're going to have infomercials and not a huge future of marketing. So I think the future of marketing is probably the intersection between the amount of data that we'll have available. Mm. And again, it's actually back to what you and I were discussing a little bit ago, which is hard and science together. So Mm. utilizing the data to really unlock human insights that will ultimately generate value for whatever brand you're, you're promoting. I think is probably finding that balance and and it will not come in the traditional way that we have experienced before. Because again, I think our audiences are changing and understanding how, back to what we were discussing a second ago, how culturally a brand shows up for their consumer is, is going to be vital. So I think the future of marketing is actually probably going to be leaders that have understanding of both the marketing side the business size of so your, your commerce piece, but also the poetry of being a human being, in my yeah. opinion. No, I love it. I love it. Well, Lena, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. It's been a blast. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. and You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. 